So our first person we'd like to invite to come and tell their story is a first timer. Thank you very much. And he is from the country of Canada, Stuart Lewis. The last time I saw dad, it's almost 6 a.m. on a January Saturday morning in the unheated town hockey rink. I'm putting on my goalie pads, then stepping onto the ice to play in the first minor league hockey game of the day. Dad is in the stands, stomping his feet, drinking tea from a thermos, cheering on me and my teammates. Dad has had to miss many key bits of my young life as he marries, buries, and otherwise attends to his flock at the local United Church of Canada, where he is the pastor. But here he is, as always, never missing one of my hockey games. He could be spending this hour in bed before coming back to pick me up in a warm car, like most of the other dads. Instead, he can truthfully tell me, I made a fine Johnny Bauer-like poke check in the second period, depriving opposing forward John McCarthy, whose dad sells my dad a new car every three years, of the opportunity to score. The last time I saw dad, he finally relents to my argument. I know this stuff, dad. This stuff being the collected beliefs of the United Church. I should be confirmed, I insist. You're only 12, dad argues. The United Church does not confirm 12-year-olds. The confirmation class is full of high school students. But I'm stubborn, and he knows it. Ah, you'd argue with the devil, he says, exasperated. Fine, if you pass the exam, I'll confirm you. A few months of weekly evening classes later, he is handing back the exam papers. I get an A, first in the class. Dad is no longer exasperated. The last time I saw dad, he is arguing in favor of me taking brown-eyed, raven-haired Kathy McKenzie to my high school graduation dance. She's a lovely girl, Betty, he says to my mom. Mom will certainly not argue that, but she's a formidable woman from a long line of Scots Presbyterians and not to be easily outdone. She has evidence, damning evidence, and a strong case to put forward. Two of my dad's brothers fell for the charms of Catholic girls. Yes, Kathy is a Catholic girl. The result, my uncle signed away ownership of their sperm to the Pope. How would they bring up the children? Mom asks. Betty, the boy is only 17, says dad, knowing he has already established precedent in this particular social concern. Mom, born in 1929, and now a minister's wife, rather than the banker or lawyer she might have been, respects precedent. But will dad bring it up? When we first moved to this town, my dad argued that my younger brother, Ronnie, and I should be allowed to attend the Catholic junior high, a block from the manse. All their friends go there. Why should they have to trek to the other side of town just to go to the Protestant junior high? And so Ron and I were enrolled in St. Mary's. We had a kind of diplomatic community, two of three Protestants in the class. We were permitted to opt out of first period religion class, capital R, capital C. We could read 
quietly while our friends learned about the dire consequences of indulging in any one of the seven deadly sins. And so, a few years later, I take Kathy to the dance. The last time I saw Dad, he is sharing his thoughts about some theological concept or other, requiring a look at verses from the book of Isaiah. Handing me his Bible, he waits. I should read the passage for myself, he insists. The sound of the hospital breathing apparatus that he's hooked up to wheezes in judgment as I search. Flip, 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 bloody Old Testament. Where the hell is Isaiah? I silently curse. Dad reaches for his pad and his pencil, scratches something down and turns the pad towards me. There it is, five words of condemnation. You don't know your Bible, busted. The last time I saw Dad, he is coming out of the visitor's entrance of the Halifax Infirmary Hospital. Has he come over from Prince Edward Island to visit one of his congregants who's had major surgery? I yell a block away, Dad, Dad. He doesn't hear me. So I break into a run. Dad! I get close. Finally, he hears and turns his face to me. His usual smile, the clergyman's collar. Dad? I falter. It's not Dad. The last time I saw Dad, I'm waiting on a hillside that slopes down to a burbling brook. W.B. Yates could not conjure this place. The last of the slope near the brook is crossed by a road that leads to a bridge spanning it. The soil is painted the deep iron-rich red of Prince Edward Island. The bridge is just wide enough to allow the heavy potato farm tractors to lumber safely across it. Where are you, Dad? I ask aloud, waiting less and less patiently. But there he is, coming through the churchyard gravestones to the new one at the edge. He moves toward me, wearing his familiar gray cardigan and his leather moccasin slippers. He pulls me close as he has done countless times. Give me one of his big bear hugs. The last time I saw dad, he comforts me. Oh, thank you so much, Stuart. How lovely, oh, what a lovely, um, honouring of um, your dad and that lovely repeated line the last time, the last time. Um, at the start, when you were talking about your dad marrying and burying and marrying and burying, I found myself thinking, how many women did your dad marry and subsequently <laughs> die? And I was like, oh, no, he's the celebrant. Yeah, he is just a serial marrier. That's so right. The story That's was right. going to go in a very different direction had that been the case about your dad it's marrying indeed. women and them all dying on a yearly basis. That could be quite awkward. <laughs> to Glasgow and the wonderful Gita meeting. There's a sad kind of symmetry uh, that the last time I saw my friend was the same place as one of the first times I saw her. I'll get to the last time too soon, but let me tell you the beginning of the story. She and her husband were new friends, 10 years older than us. These welcoming proper grown-ups had invited us for a meal with another couple. And I'm sure they were there to lubricate the wheels of conversation in case we turned out to be crappy company. 
we were a bit uncertain in a new village and not really used to dinner parties as much as pizza and beers with elbows on Ikea coffee tables and paper towels for plates. This was a whole different kettle of fish and I'd stood in front of the wine section in the supermarket for an awkwardly long time, trying to gauge the correct amount to spend on a bottle and what the difference between a Merlot and a Malbec might be. I reckon the store CCTV guy thought he had a malfunctioning camera. But we were there, round the table, set with cloth napkins and lit by candles, music in the background and ready laughter and acceptance in the air. The food was delicious, as we would come to expect from that table. Roast lamb studded with garlic and rosemary, dauphin was potatoes and greens with homemade bread for mopping up sauce and so much good wine. The friends there with us were clearly part of the family, him half Italian, a bass player in a Bruce Springsteen tribute band, her half Indian, generous and gorgeous. And at the time she was a drug representative selling Viagra. They always had the best quality pens with a nice weighty heft to them. It was a heady thing being accepted into their company. Not great for either the waistline or for the liver, but so, so good for the soul. She was smart, a PhD with a love of science and art, both of which I shared. And she loved to talk about God and faith and church and just as much about sex and periods and breastfeeding. She was the first woman I knew who talked earthily about how it was to be female, uh, to desire, to bleed, to give birth. In the true sense of the word, she was deeply sensual, loving, gorgeous, scented soaps and lotions. And I still spray on her favourite Clarence perfume when I walk past the concession in a department store. If you wore something made of soft wool or velvet, you'd soon feel her hand on your arm dreamily stroking you. And that was more comforting and less creepy than it sounds. She was quick with a kiss or a hug anytime you needed one and sometimes when you didn't. We had a matching history of being smart, shy, book-loving wee girls who would turn to stories to escape the world we didn't quite feel we fitted. When a good cry was needed by our 10-year-old selves, we had both turned to the Narnia stories. And as grown-up women, we could still conjure tears by reminding ourselves that Aslan was not a tame lion after all. Both of us loved Tolkien's Middle Earth, discovering early in our friendship a shared annual rereading of The Lord of the Rings and a serious crush on Aragorn. Over the years, there were more dinners, lots more wine and many late night conversations about faith and sex and God. She introduced me to Richard Rohr and Barbara Brown Taylor and Anne Lamott, and I introduced her to an Irish poet called Podrick. There was always more to read and more to learn. Difficult questions were her favourite ones and she didn't tolerate lazy answers. We loved her kids, my husband and I, first as teenagers in our youth group and then as adults. One nannied for our children, instituting Crazy Fridays when we'd arrive home from work to find them all sugar high on sweets from the corner shop, half watching a movie in a room that looked as though a tornado had visited central Scotland. It wasn't all wine glasses and heroic tales, mind you. Uh, somewhere in the middle of our story, we lost one another. She was treated uh, badly by someone we both knew and I didn't listen well enough to her story. I wasn't able to see beyond my experience to hers and in the process, I hurt her deeply. That one's not my story to tell. 
only that my part in it is something I'll always regret. Then came one of those diagnoses you dread when a lump turns out to be the kind that's trying to kill you and surgery and radiotherapy and the chemo that made her hair fall out and a reprieve for a while and then the unexpected scan result that signaled that this wasn't going to have a happy ending. I spent an afternoon sitting on a stool at her feet talking about the thing which had broken our friendship. I cried a lot and so did she. I said sorry for the not listening and the not believing and she forgave me and she apologised too, although I'm still not sure what for. It was a miracle, I'm pretty sure. Not the cancer healing kind we prayed for, but a deep magic one of another sort. I think Aslan would have approved. It felt like we both buried our heads and our hands in his mane, like Lucy and Susan when they met him on the morning of his resurrection. We were brave, the two of us, that day. And as free as C.S. Lewis's storybook girl was getting to ride on the back of the great lion. But time was short. And so the last time I saw her, that lovely dining table was gone, replaced by a hospital bed raised up incongruously high so that as she lay propped on those white pillows, we were shoulder to shoulder. She was drowsy with the morphine by then, sleeping when I arrived, but surfacing a little as I took her hands in both of mine. Her hands were always lovely, long fingered and nails elegantly shaped, and they seemed the only part of her unchanged. I cried a bit and read a benediction from John O'Donoghue's lovely book because I had no good words of my own. The room shimmered. It felt wholly that thin place between this world and the next that Celtic mystics tell of. And after a while, I heard her children arrive and not wanting to make my grief an extra burden for them, I leant in to kiss her cheek and say goodbye for the last time. She woke then for just a moment and meeting my eyes said something so tender and lovely that I can't tell it here. I need to keep that just for me. And I slipped out of the front door and home. Her life was ridiculously unfairly short and to be honest, I'm still bloody angry about that for her and for her family and for me. And I really miss my friend. I don't know for sure what comes after these last times. I don't know whether there'll be a boat sailing to Grey Havens or a coracle paddle through Sweetwater to Aslan's country. But whatever there is, I hope it includes roast lamb, red wine, good words, great music, and plenty of dirty jokes. And perhaps, if we're lucky, Aragorn might be there too. And I'm sure we can work out some kind of harem arrangement. Oh, Gita, uh, why did you do this to me? <laughs> that, was, that was just amazing, amazing. So, oh, just brilliant. Um, are you really, you know, I said this to Catherine as well previously, um, I just love it when people bring someone alive to to a group of people who can who have never known that person and we can kind of appreciate what a force of life and, and joy they were. Uh, that was just, you know, you break my heart. <laughs> I'm, I'm more used to you making me laugh with your hilarious stories, but that was that was fantastic.